nine times out of 10, we can build that self-actualization journey inside of the business. And it sounds very hippie and that sort of thing, but these are the folks that, that become part of the tribe. They become, you know, fast companions on the journey. Well, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Uh, I have a good friend and uh, acquaintance that I've gotten to know just recently who just, I think, just brings a lot of wisdom and uh, just a lot of knowledge around startups and business ventures. Um, Trey Taylor, uh, thanks for being here. And um, Trey is, man, he does a lot of things, but the reality is, is you know, he, he has uh, an employee benefit firm. And, um, but also the reason why I wanted him on this podcast today specifically was, is because he spends a lot of time working in the startup space and working with CEOs and helping them grow and develop their culture and their businesses. And, um, the other thing is, is that Trey is, uh, writing a book right now. It's actually done and it's coming out November 10th. And the name of the book is the CEO, CEO only does three things, um, finding your focus in the C-suite. Trey, I want to thank you for being here. And uh, if you want to just add a little commentary to the, the introduction, and uh, that'd be great. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. And uh, good to get to know you over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you and I have a lot of uh, shared philosophy in the way that uh, the financial planning space should work and that sort of thing. So it's uh, always interesting to chat with you about that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, the book is, uh, you know, it's, it's coming out November the 10th. Uh, it's been a, a, a bit of a labor of love. If you've ever written one, you know how difficult it can be when you hold a couple of other full-time jobs. But uh, uh, I, I, my hope is that it's a handbook for CEOs, a handbook for business owners who want to professionalize their operations. And uh, we're getting a lot of good media on it, a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, Kevin Harrington, who was the original shark from Shark Tank, uh, he and I had a conversation. He said, well, send me the book. So I sent him a proof copy. Uh, he read it. And he, he emailed back and said, uh, I want to write the forward to this book. This is an important book. And, you know, he started hundreds of businesses, sold a billion dollars worth of product. And he says in the last line of the forward, this is the book that I wish I had when I was a young CEO. And um, uh, that was exactly why I wrote it. But to hear it from somebody as, uh, as experienced as Kevin was really good. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to have you here and let's dig in. Okay. So Trey, man, I really appreciate you coming on and just uh, thanks for being here. And uh, if you want to add just a little bit of commentary to, you know, who you are and, and uh, where you're from and just add it to the listeners, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So I live in um, uh, Georgia, in rural Georgia, as a matter of fact, uh, after having spent uh, an early part of my career sort of living all around the world in New Orleans and Atlanta and overseas uh, and doing work in uh, California and New York uh, in, the, in the financial sector. And uh, so we've uh, come home and uh, settled in my family's hometown about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It's awesome. And you have a, you, and you, you know, your background is quite extensive. I mean, you have a law degree, um, you studied in Oxford. Um, do you want to share a little bit about your background as, as far as your education goes? Yeah, so I went to uh, law school out of uh, undergrad, which I did at Emory uh, University in Atlanta, where I studied, uh, you know, history, economics, politics, and that sort of thing. I did a year abroad uh, in the UK at Oxford at St. Peter's College and uh, came home and sort of figured, you know, how do I take uh, what I'm very interested in and make it valuable to other people? And so I thought uh, that a law degree would be a way to go into that. Uh, got into law school, absolutely hated every second of it, uh, and thought to myself, I could not spend the rest of my life uh, selling 
my life in 15 minute increments. I know that there are people who uh, enjoy doing that. It's just not me. Uh, so I came out and uh, went in-house with uh, some internet companies. So I was one of the first employees at uh, the company that became WebMD. Um, uh, did a venture fund uh, in the meantime until September 11th, sort of took that away and then um, ended up at uh, doing venture capital relations for an ISP called Earthlink and then eventually with uh, AOL. And then um, had a little bit of family uh, tragedy and had to come home and take over the family business, which was a 50-year-old uh, financial planning uh, investments and employee benefits firm. And uh, it was a little bit of a downshift as far as uh, speed of life goes, but uh, I got married, had kids, that sort of thing. And uh, it's really been good. We've professionalized our operation there. And uh, I've learned a lot along the way. And that some of that is what I'm sharing in the book. Uh, here today. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, talking with and, and working with startups and um, just just working with so many entrepreneur mindsets, was it always like a passion of yours um, to be an entrepreneur or did you, you know, when you were looking at what you wanted to do when you grew up, right? Did you always have that entrepreneur mindset or was it kind of you're going to go to law school and maybe become an attorney? I know that you said that you hated every minute of it, right? But what what triggered you to be that, have that entrepreneur so I have this uh, schizophrenia. My dad was very entrepreneurial. He started a group of uh, video stores in the 80s and rolled them up and sold them to the company that became Hollywood Video, um, which is a nationwide roll up. Um, I always was impressed by that. I really uh, have a lot of reverence for people that start their own thing. But then I'm also a very conservative and cautious person as well. That's the schizophrenia. So I really like it. Uh, and I've started business, but I, I'm much more of an entrepreneur. I start businesses from within other businesses. Um, but I also know a lot of things that are uh, important for entrepreneurs to know. And so I've always found myself in the business of sort of advising and creating uh, companies with other entrepreneurs who are a little more risk-minded than maybe I would be on a lot of times. And uh, I also have the ability to structure uh, transactions and to sort of call capital into being. And so when I do those things, uh, obviously it's a good fit for the entrepreneurial and startup space. Did that, did having the employee benefits world kind of lead into that? Was that kind of an easy transition as you're working with the business owners, talking about all the benefits and the things that you do on the, on the employee benefit side, and then it just kind of started to naturally come up? Or was that just something that, that you added on over time because of your interest? Yeah, so I really started more in the startup space. So when I was at okay. WebMD, uh, we actually created WebMD Ventures. Uh, to, to take some cash and invest in uh, promising technologies that WebMD could uh, partner with or acquire or something of that nature. Um, and so that led me to starting our own venture consulting and follow-on fund in Atlanta in the uh, late 90s, uh, you know, early 2000 um, uh, time period. And so that sort of came before the uh, employee benefits phase. Now, of course, I do I do both. They're, you know, sort of mm -hmm. both tools in the tool belt that I use uh, all the time. So in, in working with, you know, all the startup companies um, that you work with and share your knowledge, wh what would you say to be successful? What What is the number one thing from a mentality standpoint? Or what are you seeing out there in, in that space for what these startups and entrepreneurs are doing to create success of their business? Yeah, so the number one thing that we think of when I've got my investment hat on is uh, you bet the jockey, not the horse. 
So the technology might be compelling. It might be the greatest thing you've ever seen. I might get really excited about it. But if the person who's supposed to be living and breathing that technology and the growth of the business around it and figuring out really, you know, we do a lot of early stage stuff, figuring out how to get that product market fit nailed in the seed stage. Uh, if that person isn't the right person, then it isn't something for us. And so I encourage people all the time to be working on themselves as a CEO. And I have a very narrow definition of what that means. Um, and so when I see somebody that I think is a good CEO, I think, yeah, this is worth putting uh, time and money behind to make it successful. So is it, is it more of when you're evaluating or determining if someone's a, a good CEO is, is, you know, is, is it more of the personality or, you know, like, Hey, this, this guy's great to have just a beer with, or we get along, or is there a criteria that you look at and evaluate as you're making these decisions? Yeah. So I look at uh, a couple of different things. Uh, one, can they be a CEO according to my definition? And my definition is that a CEO only does three things. Um, understanding that, uh, you know, any CEO has a task list to do, a to-do list to do every day. Of course, you know, those things are on there, but what I mean by that is a, a CEO can only do three things that no one else can do. And those three things are working on the culture, the people, and the numbers of the organization. So really setting the agenda for, for what does the organization look like from a cultural standpoint? Who participates in, in bringing those values to life in the marketplace? And how do we know we're successful in doing that? We look at a scorecard, which we call numbers. And so I'm trying to find that person and I'm often surprised it, it isn't dependent on age. It isn't dependent necessarily on background. Uh, it's just somebody who those three things really click for and who can get that, uh, that kind of work done. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we look for is a CEO who understands the value of um, delegating a task to someone and allowing that person to run until the task has been completed. Um, you will get a lot farther down the road, which is important in an early stage company, you get farther down the, the road if you've got somebody that you let run the ball all the way uh, until they can't run it anymore, as opposed to running the ball and then you stepping in at 15%, 35%, 85%, taking, making tweaks, taking the ball for yourself and running it for a while and that sort of thing. It's a waste of time. And what we see is that gets you uh, it shortens the run. You know, you don't make as much progress over the long term. The progress may be higher quality progress. Uh, that's what the CEO always says, uh, but it, it isn't always the case. Yeah, because they because they interrupt or, or step in and, and not allowing that process to take place. Right. I mean, they, they kind of interject their their influence on that that which can sl slow down the whole project. Um, you know, it was interesting that you made a comment about culture, because I think, you know, a lot of times um, in the conversations that I have, you know, culture is a, is a word that we can throw a lot around a lot. And it makes, you know, we, we feel like we have our culture, right? But a lot of times, I think, coming from a CEO perspective, do people really know what the vision and the mission and the culture really is? And is it talked about on an ongoing basis? Because you could kind of have a culture, but it's not one that's defined or, or you know, spoken to where everybody buys into that. Would you agree to that? I completely agree. Uh, in the book, we go into an exercise where we determine, do you have an articulated culture? Is mm -hmm. it one that you have intentionally constructed or do you have what we call the least common denominator culture? Because let's be clear, every business has a culture. 
The culture is simply the ethical water in the fish tank that we're all swimming around in trying to navigate and figure out what's good. One culture is better than another in as much as it benefits the collective group over the individual. So a least common denominator culture is one that the CEO says, man, culture's not for me. It's not my job. I got to go build a product or make a sale or something of that nature. That's too fluffy. It's too soft. I'll let HR handle it or somebody else will handle it. And what happens is the weeds begin to reclaim the parking lot, you know, and mm-hmm. this least common denominator culture, which always benefits the individual over the group. So, you know, somebody gets special privileges or somebody gets to cut a corner or something because it's good for them, whether it's good for the company or not. And that's where the uh, that's where we do a lot of work with CEOs right up front is to figure out, you know, let's do some observation and figure out what the values that you hold dear in this company are good and bad. Let's Mm -hmm. prune the bad ones. Let's uh, nurture the good ones. And then we'll come out with something that we call an articulated culture, which has value statements, which are more important to me than a mission statement or a vision statement. Those are useful tools. But what I like is everybody singing from the same hymnal of this is what we believe is valuable um, in creation in the world. So how often, like, as you're working through and going through that culture, and, and I just want to spend some time on this because I think this is just an, such an important piece to all this, from the, 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 the design or the, the going through that exercise and articulating it, is that something then that the CEO or, or the different department heads and stuff should continually communicate to the team? And is there like a concept or, or time period that you, like every week that you're reviewing and articulating that culture? Is there, have you seen that like, what has created that success to where people are really starting to buy into the culture and that they can repeat it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So each company is different as far as what management cadence and cultural cadence they want to establish. So I have um, a client in the entertainment space. And so they have the fun dementals that they talk about, right? And they ritualize it and they have a good time with it. It's very peculiar to their culture. uh, And they have four fundamentals. Well, four leans, leads itself to, um, you know, a quarterly implementation. So every quarter they super focus on one of those fundamentals. And uh, one of them I know is uh, customer delight. And so first quarter of every year, they have exercises around that. Every week something goes out, they share a story about this is a customer who we delighted. Here's an email from them, or here's the particular story around it. You know, that sort of thing. Financial excellence is one of their fundamentals as well. And so in the fourth quarter, uh, you know, they, they talk a lot about how do we uh, think about budgets in the next year? How do we uh, trim operations? How do we optimize? And then what do we do with what we do optimize? So how does that benefit the entire collective? So they have a bonus structure, all of that sort of thing. So that lends itself to that cadence. My own business, we have uh, what we call the B attitudes. And so those attitudes, uh, we have 13 of them. Uh, and 13 times four is 52. So that leads, leads itself very nicely. We, we repeat ours four times a year. One week out of each quarter gets its own beatitude. We talk about it. Uh, meetings start with a conversation about it. You know, the more important the CEO says culture is for us, the more you see it propagate, spread, and show up in the behaviors of your people. It's awesome. So what, what would you say would be at, over your experience and things, what would, what would be the biggest mistakes that you see um, 
people making in the entrepreneur space or running a company from a CEO standpoint? Yeah, it's, it's an 80-20. Most CEOs delegate the things that they can only do well to somebody else, right? So culture, you know, setting the agenda around who needs to be part of this deal, like, you know, mm -hmm. spending a lot of time framing out the roles, uh, the responsibilities, the, the type of people that come in, setting the agenda around these are the goals with hard numbers and soft numbers and that sort of thing. A lot of times a CEO delegates that and it shouldn't be delegated. And then in the meantime, they're picking up things and working on things that should, should be delegated, you know, like product development or, or sales strategy and that sort of thing. And, and I don't mean to say that the CEO isn't welcome in those discussions, but I mean, owning the final result should always lie with someone else. And that's the big mistake that I, that I see people make. Um, and this is where all the management sins that we can talk about come from. Um, micromanagement and, um, you know, second guessing and armchair quarterbacking and all of that sort of thing, which are very demoralizing. They all come from a CEO uh, having the wrong mindset, the wrong prioritization. And how do I know? Because I've been that guy completely. Right. I've committed every sin that I rail against, of course. So would you, in relation to that too, I, I suppose it really helps with, you know, structuring who you hire, how you hire them, putting the right people in the right position so you can delegate or you can just not have to micromanage and, and really just allow them to do their job. And that's hard because as CEOs, we want to take control. We want to, you know, have our hand over everything. But, you know, what would you say about the process or just, you know, conversations that you've had with evaluating whether these people are in the right space or not or what exercises do you have uh, CEOs and, and the departments kind of go through who is on their team and, and how do they hire those people? So we do a lot of organizational psychology in the book and in the consulting practice. And one of the things that we do is we, we, we walk CEOs through a model of um, understanding people. So how do you know how people tick? And it's a, it's a dual phase model. The first one is uh, it's based on the work of a, a, psych, a psychologist, organizational psychologist and uh, a um, good friend of mine and mentor of mine who passed just last year, his name was Ron Willingham. And Ron had this model of a three-tiered dimension of self. And so you have this intellectual dimension, you have an emotional dimension, and then at the deepest level, you have an identity dimension. And, and what he figured out over a, a long career, he was 86 when he passed away, a really you know 50-year career, what Ron figured out was um, that no matter what you tell someone to think, no matter how you think they should feel, people always act in accordance with the mental image of themselves that they hold. That mental image is called an identity, right? It's a self-image. And so I need CEOs to understand that they also operate in that model and their people do as well. And it changes radically the management that you do of people. So I don't tell my people what to think. I don't tell them what to feel. I tell them who we are. And if they are a fit for that, then they naturally adhere to the things that we think and feel because we're in congruence with those things. That's the first phase of the model. The second phase is based on the work of a, a, a psychologist who started at Tavistock Institute. And uh, he wrote this great book called, I think it was called like General Theory of Bureaucracy. Right. It's like the most boring book title ever. His name was Elliot Jacks. He's a Canadian uh, psychologist. 
And what Elliot figured out, he was, he was obsessed with this uh, problem for like 30 years. If I hire two people and they're exactly the same education, uh, they grew up the same sort of middle-class lifestyle, uh, both of them are married the same year, they have two kids, they drive you know, the same car, they live in the same, roughly the same neighborhood, that sort of thing. If I look out two years, one of those people is going to outperform the other person, right? It's never that they perform 50-50, exactly equal, that sort of thing. He was obsessed with finding out why that was. And he articulated this uh, philosophy, this, uh, this psychology that says that we each come to work with a time frame under which we can do our optimal best work without the need for management. Some people, that's a really short thing. So some people need to be told on a daily basis, this is what you will achieve today. Some people is on a weekly basis, some on a monthly, quarterly, annual, three, five years, 20 years, 100 years, you know, everybody has a different time frame. So if you see what I'm doing there is I'm getting the CEO to understand that people exist inside their own identity. And one of the portions of that identity is that time frame. When we go through this exercise with CEOs and they start looking at people in this way, we find immediately that they have, sometimes they have the wrong people in the organization, right? Most of the time, 80-20, 80% of the time, they have the right people in the wrong positions. And I don't mean job function. Like it's obvious that the sales guy isn't gonna end up in the finance organization, right? right. The sales guy that you have overmanaged with five different layers of management is probably a better single producer, solo producer, sales manager himself, something of that nature. So we have to move people up and down in organizations to find their happy spot, to find that warm spot for them where they can, where they can really grow and be nourished by the culture and the other people. One, it just it, it allows them to feel like they have an important role probably in the organization to where you look at them, not so much just as a, an employee, but a part of the, the culture and the team to where, you know, they come, they want to come to work every day, right? And they find that they, they kind of try to create that purpose and, and then and then they're buying into your culture and what the outcomes are. I think that's huge. Um, talk so about secret, I think the secret here is, uh, every human has an innate desire to self-actualize. And what that means, it sounds all full-blown and stuff. What it means is we have a picture of ourselves that isn't quite colored in and complete yet. And we are each on a journey of trying to complete that picture. It may be the wrong picture, and that's something for a different um, exercise completely, but at least we've got that picture of ourselves. And I think the greatest CEOs say, let's help you self-actualize. And hopefully it's within the framework of the business. You know, nine times out of 10, that's the case. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people have to, to live up to that identity picture of themselves in a different environment. And, and we shouldn't be angry at them and they shouldn't be angry at us for recognizing that and helping them on the journey somewhere else. But nine times out of 10, we can build that self-actualization journey inside of a business. And it sounds very hippie and that sort of thing, but these are the folks that, that become part of the tribe. They become you know, fast companions on the journey. And what is the timeline? I mean, how much, I mean, is it, it is like, a, is it like a really soul searching, uh, difficult process, I suppose, sometimes as you're working with these CEOs to really be able to dig deep and maybe take out the blinders and really expose some vulnerability? Do you talk, we, I mean, we, we get it all done within, uh, in, in, at the base level, we get it all done within a week of assessments, right? Okay. So, so our process starts with the strategic planning process where we 
uh, anonymously survey everybody in the organization on 10 different functional uh, levels. So a question might be, you know, scale of one to 100, uh, how confident are you that your organization has a culture rooted in trust and teamwork? So we collate all those answers, we bring it back and let's say that score is a 78. If it's a 78, what do we want it to be? A hundred. So then the management team and I go through an exercise where we say, what would it take to get us, what actions do we have to put into the world so that people can see it to move their opinions from 78 to a hundred? And that gives us a list of strategic actions to work on throughout the course of 12 months. I'm not a really big fan of long, long-term strategic plans because the world changes too quickly and right. too significantly and throws you off and you have to do it again. Consultants love long, long-term strategic plans because they get to sell them to you again and again and again. Right. I like to sell, you know, sell. I like to produce one uh, year strategic action plans on those 10 categories. So that's the first thing. Um, the second part of that strategic planning process is, and this emerges naturally every time, is an understanding of let's look at the total human capital roster and figure out for ourselves, are people in the right time frame or not? Are they at the right horizon level or not? I'm working with a consultant right now who we're thinking of bringing on full time. I thought that she was a level three person, which should be um, hey, go do this task and report back to me at the end of the quarter with, with fully articulated results. Mm. She's a level two. She needs to talk to me every week or two weeks in order to feel confident that she's doing the right work. Here's the challenge. I don't want to be in that business. That's why I hire a consultant, right? Yeah. I don't want to talk about this every week or two weeks. It's too expensive on my time to do that. So if I do that, then her pay has to adjust down to that level. In reality, it means I'm not going to hire her as a permanent part of the organization. I'm going to go find that person that li lives at that higher level three quarterly reporting. Like I can handle everything you throw at me and I'll bring you back optimal results at the end of the quarter. That's what I want. That's who I'll go find. You know, and just being able to recognize that, you know, it's probably the changes in profitability and in margins and measure and just everything is just it's the roof right i mean it's just it's looking at opportunity cost with just putting people in the right place of time and value of your money yeah well you know this in your own uh, your own practice uh, you never meet a ceo or an owner of a business who immediately complains about the finances of the business they complain about the people right business would be great except for the employees is an old joke um, and it's the case all the time usually because we have those people improperly tasked and so in, uh, you know how hard it is to hire and train and how many of us have committed the management sin of saying, well, I know this is not the best person for the job, but I can't go through the hassle of firing them, rehiring, retraining, the expense that walks out the door when I do that. So I'm just going to make it work and lump it, right? And so this exercise very typically means that we don't have to let that person go. We simply find the right horizon in the organization. Sometimes it's a reorg. Uh, in my own organization, we had a guy who, uh, it was right at the point that we were breaking our sales team into a sales and service team. So you get to a certain point where your sales guys are doing their own servicing of clients, and then you get too big for that. So you have to break those up into two different uh, functions. And so we had hit that, that phase where we had to do that. Well, this guy was a very good 
customer service person, really good, very disciplined in his thinking, systems-based in his actions, really good. And he came to me and he said, look, I'm really not happy in the organization. I think at the end of the year, he gave me a lot of notice, I'm going to move on. And I said, well, what if we took you and made you the head of a team to build out the way that we handle customer service? He immediately blossomed in that role. And we've got the best customer service, uh, you know, customer success team that we've seen in the industry. I have people coming in and hiring him now to build, to rebuild that organization elsewhere. And what was the whole issue? He was at a level two. I moved him to a level three. He's doing excellent work. Absolutely excellent work now. So well, it's my own organization. And was that something that you recognized or was it just kind of through your, through your conversation and he came to you, were you about ready to go to him to kind of figure out what was going on or were you unaware of the. No, we were both in the same zone and it was one of these things that we like each other. We're friendly. Yeah. Uh, we, we admire each other. I think uh, I respect him a lot. He's very educated, very smart, very thoughtful. And um, his results in a sales based role were not very good. And I felt bad for him that we had taken, we'd hired him from somebody else. We had taken him and made some big promises and he wasn't executing on those promises for himself. And I felt bad about that. And so we had that conversation and I began to hear in the way that he expressed things that he was way more interested in systems and processes. Well, that's a higher level function than he was in the production of results that he could sort of clap himself on the back for it. That's a very sales function. And so it became apparent in conversation. And I said, look, I'll give you six months. We'll, we'll try it out for six months. I'll maintain pay and that sort of thing for six months. And then we'll figure out what it looks like at the end of that. That was four years ago. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a pillar. He's now a core manager of the business. I have four core managers of that business. He's one of the uh, management board of that business and, um, and, a, and a true value to the organization. You know, you made a comment um, right when we were first starting uh, about how when you look at opportunities or grow um, businesses, it's, it's more from an internal peel off. And I'm paraphrasing here, right? The peel off and I, your exact words. And I found that really interesting because I think um, a lot of people will be going all over the places that they have an entrepreneurial spirit. They're going in this business or trying to dabble in this business. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really um, just really strategic in, in how you can utilize and there's opportunity even within your business to peel off in different areas to keep it more of a, a, a streamlined process. Yeah, I think the whole concept of entrepreneurship is uh, really uh, not appreciated. It's not taught much in university and that sort of thing. But uh, for people who own businesses, you always know what the competitor is doing. And you should ask yourself, could we do that better than they're doing it? So for example, in my employee benefits practice, we had good products and services for blue and sort of gray collar employees. But for owners, we didn't have the right products. We didn't have the right business processes to address their needs and that sort of thing. So I eventually realized that after having gone through a planning process of my own, I said, why couldn't I do that for my, the owners of the clients that we service employee needs for? And so we peeled off and went and recruited and hired a very good a financial planner. I took him out of a, the banking space because I wanted somebody who was very analytical, who mm -hmm. wasn't going to rush a sale, you know, those kinds of things. I wanted to get the answer right. And it was an asset-based planning model, which you're extremely familiar with, of course. And, uh, and so we built that practice around that person and it's owned by the same company. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the 
compensation is is different, but still, you know, it compensates me and him for doing the work. And that's an entrepreneurial uh, venture that happened inside the organization, as opposed to me saying, hey, I love hot dogs. Let me go open a hot dog stand. Right. And, and then none of my existing infrastructure works to support that. So I have to reinvent an in infrastructure. And one thing I hate worse than anything is fixed cost. Right. I want as low a fixed cost threshold as I can get in life and as high a variable income structure as I can put together. And so that that informs a lot of the business uh, decisions that I make. You know, that, that that's a great point, too, Trey, is that, you know, the fixed cost. I mean, I, I was having a conversation with another colleague of mine and they were talking about bringing on all these staff and, and to do to do these different roles. I'm like, why would you have those fixed costs? Because if they don't perform, you're stuck. Turn it into more of a, a, a cost share variable opportunity so they have skin in the game. And it's, I think it's really interesting too, from an, from a, a corporate standpoint or, or running a business is a lot of times it, those fixed costs can really just chew you up. And we, we have to just get more creative, I think, in the way that we compensate people. Exactly right. I'm a full believer in that. And so I have an executive assistant who's one of the world-class executive assistants in the world. Um, she ran an entire HR department. She's a British lady, tremendously um, accomplished, speaks many languages. Uh, and intuits at a very high level what I want done before I have to do it. Well, you know, I never met her. I've seen her on a Zoom call from time to time. We've been working together for six years. I've never seen the woman in the flesh. I don't need to because she can handle all of the things that I need done uh, on a virtual basis, which is a strength. I also pay her for hours that she works. Mm -hmm. And I pay her a lot for those hours. But that some total of all that I pay her is way less than I would pay somebody who was at my, um, you know, beck and call. Well, she sort of is at my beck and call 40 hours a week. <laughs> uh, you know, she, she really divides her time up uh, to make it. I, I'm sure that she has other clients and that sort of thing. But, you know, mm -hmm. she's there when I need her, but she doesn't charge me when she's sitting around waiting on me to tell her what to do, which is a very inefficient use of capital. Right. And so every year I give her a 10, 20 percent raise you know, because I want her to be super interested in staying as my EA, because God knows I can't live without her now. But um, you know, we have to be really uh, creative on how we do those kinds of, of things. And I'm constantly doing that. I have a, a marketing contract right now with someone who, you know, they want about 250 a year. And I showed them how if the marketing paid off, it'd be worth about 10 times that to me. And I would split them 30% off of that. And so I said, this is an entrepreneurial venture. If you want to take it, that's cool. They did take it. They are producing and they're going to make way more than the initial, um, you know, ask that they had in the job. We have to be a lot more creative around that. So talk about, um, and I know we've been talking about many different things today, but, you know, when you sat down and wrote your book, are you talking and sharing a lot of these ideas and, and concepts inside that book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we go through the, the, the trinity, the culture people numbers, but then there's a lot of stories around, uh, you know, the, the ways that you should make these things happen. One of the things we talk about in the numbers section. So a CEO has to set the agenda for numbers because the CEO has to be the one that says, this is how we measure success. Sometimes that's in terms of dollars. Sometimes it's in terms of new customers or customer satisfaction scores, whatever they happen to be. <clears throat> you can delegate 
the reporting and management of those numbers. There's nothing wrong with that. You can't delegate the setting of the agenda and the being of transparent around that agenda. So I go into a lot of um, uh, companies where no one knows if the company's pr even profitable or not, right? Or we, do we operate in the red or the black? Nobody knows that. And to me, it's very important that we drive as great a penetration of transparency as we can, as deep in the organization as we can. And that's a very uncomfortable place. So if you walk into the front door of my building today and ask the receptionist, how much money did we make last month? She can answer you. Wow. Because we're extremely transparent around what our numbers are. And you say, well, gosh, that's uncomfortable or it's weird and that sort of thing. I, I don't mind being weird. Um, that's okay <laughs> with me. Because here's what happened. 08, 09, when everybody's life turned upside down, right? I sat my team down. And because I had educated them about what financials meant, they know my team knows how to read a PL. Uh, most organizations don't spend time teaching that. We make sure that people do this part of our onboarding process. Um, because of that, I was able to say to them, guys, I need to trim $200,000 a year off to make sure that we stay uh, in the comfort zone in the next two years, because I think the recession is really going to hit the way that people purchase benefits for their employees. We sat around and they went around the, the table and we came up with $120,000 of uh, expenses that we could cut comfortably. We weren't cutting to the bone, we could cut it comfortably. But that still lay, left 80,000 bucks. My people understand the concept of margin. So they don't think we have to go sell 80,000 bucks worth of stuff. They know we have to sell $160,000 worth of stuff because it's a 50% margin business. So they immediately then begin to strategize. This is without direction. It began to strategize what accounts we could go open that would equal that 160,000 bucks. And they put an entire plan together. And by the end of the year, we met the goal that we set for ourselves in that way. And then, you know, we, we froze pay. We did all of that sort of thing. And when things began to thaw out, we were in a really good uh, position with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the competitors in the industry. We bought uh, one of the competitors that we sort of had, uh, had wanted to buy for a long time, who didn't make the same choices. We were able to integrate them and everybody got a better job, more money, that sort of thing, because we, we sort of did that hunker down together. None of that would have been possible if my team didn't understand how our business works, you know, from a gear level numbers standpoint. And a lot of CEOs don't even think about that. They've never been presented that concept. A lot of them sort of clinch when I explain it to them. Uh, but when they see the results that can come from really trusting your team and the, uh, and the ideas that they're going to bring back to you and the money that they're going to put in your pocket, uh, which gives you a lot more strategic options, uh, people get happy with it pretty quickly. And I think when you go back to you know, the Trinity with, with culture and the right people in the right seats and the right positions, it allows you to be vulnerable with, with your P and L and not worried about if someone's going to, you know, Hey, I need a I need a raise or something like that. Cause I think that's a lot of it, right. They're just from a CEO perspective, they just, they don't want, they want to, they're not necessarily wanting everybody to know how much money they're making or what the company's making. John, I fly first class. Okay. I didn't want my team to know that. It just seemed like a really, um, um, ego-driven thing. And, and I have good reasons for it, but one of the reasons is I want to be comfortable when I travel. And I was embarrassed to show the team that. Not one of them ever questioned it or cared about it even a little bit. 
It mm -hmm. did come up and it is something that we gave up in the 2008 planning process where they said, look, we can save 17% on travel costs. And that equates to, I don't know, $20,000 a year if you fly coach for the next 12 to 14 months. I did that and I used upgrades when I could and that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a very uncomfortable proposition for me because the math doesn't work if I say, hey, this entire column of stuff that benefits me and nobody else, you can't touch that, you have to find it elsewhere. They're not gonna produce good results on that, right? right? So and, they were able to do that. Yeah, and nor are they gonna buy in and, and have that culture that you've worked so hard to, to establish to, you know, and to think about it to where you have a number of people in the room trying to find a common goal versus the fear of, oh, am I, is my position going to get cut or, you know, the, the anxiety and, and the, the, when that happens, people don't perform. That's right? exactly right. And you'd be really interested to have been in that meeting because one of the first things that the group itself decided to talk about was, do we need to fire somebody? Well, wow. right. And they all agreed that we don't want to do that. So let's build a plan that allows everybody here to keep their job. We did have one person say, I think I'd rather work 20 hours a week than be 40 right now. Cause she had a, a mom who was ill living at home. Mm -hmm. We restructured some of her tasks. That, that was a way that we saved about 10 K a year. It wasn't, it wasn't everything that we needed, but it was a bunch of little things like that. My receptionist called her mom who runs the HR department at a potential uh, client that we had called on for probably 20 years and never got the first base. She called him and said, Hey, my business needs for you to come listen to a pitch and see, can they help you guys in what you're doing? We got that case because the receptionist, my eight and a half dollar hour, you know, 22 year old receptionist made a sales call for the organization. She never would have known to do that. Right. I wasn't transparent and she never would have picked up the phone to do that if it wasn't really part of the team based culture. Just just impactful stuff, man. And I, I suppose you just see the the change in the, uh, you know, I just just the just the transformation of just these little things. But yet they're so important. And yet it's just things that we just glass over and don't even really think about. That's right. You know why? Because we have our heads down selling stuff, refining product. Uh, you know, uh, dealing with angry customer emails or, uh, you know, some drama in the office or something of that nature. I have a client who we uncovered that uh, he spent, he actually spent time in his year determining what was going to go in the break room vending machine. What, what sense does that make for a CEO right. to spend time on? And P.S., he got it wrong. He right. didn't put the stuff in, he didn't need out of that machine. He didn't put the stuff that that uh, his people wanted in that machine, put the stuff that he wanted and he never ate out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of uh, sort of closed circuit insanity that we all do things like that. You know, right. I picked the coffee creamer in my office and uh, every day I walk in and somebody's got different coffee creamer because they don't like what I pick, you know? So it's all stupid stuff like that, but, right. uh, but you know, it's, it's all about being aware and really get developing the discipline of having, um, you know, let me do the three things that I know I can do and no one else can before I start work on whatever my team needs me to work on. And, and that's where I live my life right now. And it's the greatest life. I, I show up at 9.30 in the morning. I leave at noon for a two hour lunch. I leave the day at 4.30 because my team says at 10 o'clock, I need you focusing on this. And they bring my best to work in that kind of place. And so it's a real flip of how most people live their lives where they think they have to direct 
the, the daily movement of everybody in the organization. Yeah. Well, Trey, I'm, I'm looking forward to the book coming out. I'm going to, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to read it. And uh, I think everybody listening to this podcast that, you know, I, there's just so many golden nuggets in here. And, and, and I'm sure just the, what you have in that book can just really empower people to take their businesses and their companies to the next level. Um, I really appreciate the time. And, you know, I wrote the book because um, I, I heard a friend uh, say to me uh, and, and to a group one time, the same group that you and I were at uh, not long ago, he said, you, we really have an obligation to be who we needed when we were young. And that hit me, you know, that hit different for me. And I can't do that necessarily, but I can write a book for the guy that needed that handbook when I was younger. It would have saved me so much heartache. And so that's why I wrote the book. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that, that CEOs who have been in the job for a while, business owners who have been in the job for a while can, can take some stories out of the book, can take some techniques out of the book and improve the way that, uh, that they run their companies and the lives of their people. Awesome. Well, great stuff, Trey. And again, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your knowledge and your, and your wisdom to, to the, the listeners out there. And just, man, there's just, there was just a lot of great stuff in this conversation. So again, thank you. And again, the name of the book is the CEO only does the CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite. That's it. Trey Taylor. And it's on Amazon, November the 10th. And uh, if you want any more information around that or, or some of the documents that we produce and that sort of thing, you can find them at www.trinity-blue.com. That's our consulting firm. Do you want to say that one more time, Trey? Yeah, www.trinity-blue.com. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, man. And I uh, just appreciate your time and just had a great, great conversation today. So thanks again. Yeah, great chat, John. Thanks for having me.